Well, today, to start off with the message, I want to do something a little different. I want to start with some audience participation. All right, so now a bunch of you just got really, really nervous. All right, so don't worry. I'm going to call on some people that I think will be fine with this. But I want you to answer a question. Here's the question. What is one of the most significant days that you've ever had? One of the most significant days. Something changed after that day. It could be a really, really good memory. It it may be when you achieved something. It might have been something really tough, something really, really difficult. But after that day, everything was different. All right, so you got, got something in your mind? All right, so I'm going to call on some people that I know aren't afraid to talk out loud. All right, Miguel, do you have one? February 10th, 1997, which was? Okay, the day you met Jesus. Awesome. All right, yeah, that's a good one. All right, uh, Luke, you got one? Hey, good job. All right. Yes. Yes. Good. I like that one. Very, very good. All right. Another one. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll call on my wife. It was definitely an experience. Yeah. When I walked in and I saw the nurses pinching my wife's mouth shut. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I am not a violent person, and I wanted to backhand that nurse. Uh, like, please, let my wife breathe. They didn't think she knew Spanish, so they weren't talking to her. They're just like, stop screaming, so they pinch her lips shut. Anyway, yeah, that, that was the day that changed uh, our lives uh, for the better. Uh, yeah. So, all right, one more, one more. Michelle. Wow, Ash Wednesday when you were 16. You remember. That's fantastic. All right, all right. All of us in this room can think of at least one day that was a significant day. I mean, most of our days, they just blend together. But then every once in a while, there's that day that just stands out. And after that moment, everything changed. Even those of you who maybe don't have as many years as others in this room, right? Even Roman over here, who's at, how, how old's Roman now? What, seven months? Eight months? Nine months? Okay. (laughs) Even Roman has had a significant day. He went from being in the womb to being out of the room. Everything changed. All of us have had a significant day. Today, we're going to go and look in biblical history at a day that changed everything. And it was a monumental day. It changed an entire nation. It changed an entire race. It changed an entire religion. It was that powerful. And yet what we're going to discover is that that historical, monumental day actually is a shadow. It points to something even greater. And that, I believe, is the gospel. So let's pray. Father, as we uh, get ready to jump into the scriptures, I pray that you today would be our teacher. Uh, As we look at this idea of what changes us, I pray that, that coming through loud and clear, would be this gospel message. And so, Lord, everyone here is coming in at a different place spiritually, a different place emotionally. Some have had a great week. Some have had a really tough week. And yet we come to you. And would you change us? Would you help us to see Jesus today, no matter where we are on that journey? And so, Father, speak through me to your people, because you know them, you love them. And today I want to see their stories come a little bit more like Jesus' story. And so in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
Hey, if you have a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open up to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11. We are actually going to dip back into chapter 10, just a couple of verses, but it's easier if you jump to chapter 11. As you're turning to Exodus, uh, we need to just kind of set the groundwork for what we're about to read. Last week, we met Moses. We met him when he was actually a baby. Uh, Moses was born into the Hebrew people. The Israelites were living in Egypt at that time, and they were growing. Their, their population was swelling like crazy. And it began to freak out the Egyptians, especially the Pharaoh, concerned that maybe this people group was going to rise up, overthrow the Egyptians, and take over. And so to try and uh, quell their swelling numbers, the Pharaoh put them into slavery. But it didn't work. Their numbers continued to grow. So he tells the Egyptian midwives, hey, when a Hebrew woman gives birth to a baby boy, we need to kill it. But out of fear of the Hebrew God, as well as out of uh, just they love babies, they couldn't do it. And so the Pharaoh gets enraged and says, okay, then anyone who finds a Hebrew baby boy must throw it into the Nile. So when Moses' parents give birth to this little baby boy, they see him and they fall in love and they can't follow through with the, the Pharaoh's request. And so they try to hide him. And this goes on for about three months when they realize we can't hide a baby forever. Because if it gets discovered, not only does the baby boy get taken and, and killed, possibly the entire family gets killed. And so she ends up deciding, all right, I'll obey the, the Pharaoh and I'll put him in the Nile River. I'll just conveniently put him in a basket that will float on the water and kind of enmesh it into the reeds where Pharaoh's own daughter, walking by, coming down to the river to bathe, finds the basket and draws this baby boy out of the water. Now, if you know the story, you know that Moses ended up living with his family for the first few years as his mom continued to nurse him until he was of a certain age to then go to the Pharaoh's daughter where he was raised. So it means that Moses grew up knowing his family, knew he was Hebrew, but yet he grew up like an Egyptian prince. He had an Egyptian education. He would have learned their culture, their ways about their gods. And yet he would know, I'm Hebrew. And so in his mind, he would probably still think, I worship the God of the Hebrews. Well, then one day, as he's an adult, Moses is out walking. He sees an Egyptian soldier beating on a Hebrew slave. And Moses just gets upset. And so the, the uh, Hebrew part of him feels for his brother, and yet the Egyptian part of him is just like, no, you can't do this. And so in a fit of rage, he ends up killing the soldier and thinks it's covered. But word gets back to Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's enraged. And so Moses has to flee for his life. And Moses goes from being a prince of Egypt to a shepherd in Midian. He goes from being on top of the world to one of the lowest jobs that an Egyptian thought you could possibly have. And Moses thought that was it. It's done. He ends up getting married, has a kid, working as a shepherd, until that day that we saw last week when Moses is out in the wilderness and he sees a bush on fire, and yet it's not burning up. There's no smoke. And so Moses walks over to see what it is, and God speaks from the bush. And this is when God calls Moses to follow him to go back to Egypt to free the Egyptians. But Moses came up with all sorts of excuses. One was, I can't talk very well. And so God says, well, you know what? I've actually sent your brother Aaron from Egypt. He's on his way right now to Midian to come see you. And he's a pretty good talker. You know what? He will be your talker. He'll be your mouth. He'll be like your prophet. And you will look like a God. Because you're going to tell him what to say. He's going to pronounce it. And I, the Lord of heaven, will make it happen. So Moses and Aaron... 
make their way back to Egypt. They walk in, they, they find the tribe of Israel. They tell them, God has sent us to free you. The people are like, yes, that's great. And then they get an audience with the Pharaoh. But God had already warned Moses, Pharaoh's not going to be happy. I, I want you to simply ask the people, uh, ask Pharaoh to let the people go out into the wilderness for three days where they could worship me. But I'm, I'm just going to let you know, Pharaoh's not going to like the idea. He doesn't want production of everything shut down for three days. And so Moses and Aaron walk in, said, hey, Pharaoh, uh, let the people go for three days. Pharaoh's like, no way. No, who are you to tell me what to do? Who is your God? I don't even know your God. I, as the Pharaoh, am a God. So Pharaoh decides to take it out on the people. He actually says, you must make the same amount of brick, but we're no longer going to give you the straw necessary to make it. You've got to go find it yourself. But if you don't meet your quota, we're going to beat you. Life suddenly got worse for the Israelites. And so rather than cheering that Moses and Aaron are here, they're actually enraged. They're mad. They're like, thanks a lot. Life was better without you coming. And that's when God unleashes. If you've seen a movie like uh, The Ten Commandments or The Prince of Egypt or even the most recent one, Exodus of, of Gods and Kings, or is it of Kings and Gods? Uh, it stars a, a white Christian Bale as a Middle Eastern Moses. Uh, anyway, the, uh, if you've seen those movies, you've seen some of these plagues on the screen. Uh, we're not going to take time to go into each of the plagues, but there end up being 10 total. The first nine either relate with like animals or weather. Uh, some weather-related ones, like one day it was completely dark. Another time there was hail. The very first one was the water turned into blood. Uh, some of the animal-related ones, like the, the land was covered with frogs. And then another time it was gnats. And then it was a bunch of flies. And, and another time there was actually locusts that came in and just devoured the, the crops. And, and each plague just brought a lot of trouble and heartache upon the Egyptian people or upon their land. And every time one of the plagues would end, Moses and Aaron would walk into the Pharaoh and say, all right, you've seen what my God can do. Let the people go. And Pharaoh would say no. And so then another plague would come. And this just kept going on and on and on. We're going to pick it up right at the end of the ninth plague. We're going to be in chapter 10, verse 27. All right, so the darkness, this is the ninth plague. Darkness has just reigned over the land. So dark, they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. And now it's lifted. Moses and Aaron walk into Pharaoh saying, all right, let them go. In verse 27, it says this. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So at that point, Moses and Aaron begin to turn and start to walk out. And as they're walking out, God begins to speak to Moses saying, now's the time. Tell him about the 10th plague. Because it's not only Pharaoh sitting there, but all of his servants are around. And these servants are looking at Moses and Aaron as if they're incredible. Because every time they walk in, they say, Pharaoh, let the people go. He'd say, no. Moses would say, all right, then this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, it would happen. And then Moses would walk in and say, all right, you've seen it. Let them go. And by now, as it's happened nine times, the people are thinking, Moses is like a god. He's so powerful. And they're wishing so much the Pharaoh would listen to him and let the people go. 
So as Moses is walking out, God says, turn around and say this. So pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 11. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. So imagine he's in the throne room. He turns around and he looks at the Pharaoh one last time. Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, I'm sorry, between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. It's gotten so bad. Pharaoh's ignored the first nine. That God now says to Pharaoh, I knew it was going to come to this. This one's finally going to do it. It will be the death of the firstborn. The pharaohs were the kings of Egypt. And like any other kingdom, these kings would be replaced by their firstborn. The firstborn was precious. But it wasn't just Egyptian culture. Many of the cultures of this day and age thought the firstborn was the most important. It was ultra important to protect them. Because one day when the father would pass away, the firstborn son would take over the land, the possessions, the, the authority. The firstborn was super important. And God is now saying, I am going to wipe them out. Did you notice? God said he's going to wipe out all of the firstborn from the son of Pharaoh to even a slave girl. Well, who are the slaves in Egypt? The Hebrews, the Israelites. Most of the first nine plagues did not affect the Israelites. You'll see in there that it impacted the Egyptians, but it didn't impact Israel quite the same way. But now this one, God seems to be saying, I'm going to make this so sweeping, it will affect everything, even the cows. But yet, did you hear in there that God put a distinction between Egypt and Israel? That means God has a plan, some plan to protect his people. And that starts in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herb that they shall eat. And do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until 
the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's pretty dark, isn't it? It's pretty sad. God is going to come in and kill off hundreds, thousands of people and animals simply because they are the firstborn. Remember, no one has a right to take human life except God. God is the one who created humans. His image is in them. So it's his brand. It says, this is mine. And so he's the only one who has the right to take life. And he normally doesn't. But now, to get the Egyptians to do what he wants, he's going to take it. But then did you notice that bizarre plan to protect the Israelites? They were to take a lamb, kill it, take hyssop branches, dip it in the blood, paint their doorpost, and then roast the lamb and eat it. And not just to enjoy a meal at midnight. Like, they're supposed to be wearing their cloak, belt on, staff in hand, sandals on, everything packed, ready to go. Because God knows as soon as everyone wakes up and they find their firstborns dead, there's going to be a cry throughout the entire land. And the people are going to say, enough. We don't care what the Pharaoh says. Get out of here. Go. We don't want you anymore. We can't handle any more punishment from your God. He's greater than our gods. Go. Get away. And the people are going to have to leave like that. I wonder, though, if any of the Israelites maybe had just a balk in their heart, a, a sense of, oh no. Because they have been in slavery for 430 years. That means of the oldest of them, you know, what, 50, 60, 70 years old? I mean, shoot, let's just say there's a couple people who are 100. And yet Egypt, slavery, is all they've ever known. And it's all about to change. And sometimes, even when you're in something you absolutely hate, the fear of the unknown keeps you from moving out into that. You continue to stay where you're at, and you don't move. And have you ever seen that uh, TV show, uh, Intervention? It's on A&E. It's about, uh, like, drug addicts. And the camera crew tells them, hey, we're doing a documentary on addiction. And so they agree to let these cameras follow them all over the place. But what the addict doesn't know is that the family behind the scenes is working to prepare for an intervention. Because they love the addict. And whether it's uh, illicit drugs or, or medi uh, you know, medication or alcohol or, or gambling or something else, they're seeing the addict destroy their life. It's destroying their relationships. For many of them, it's destroying their health. That Some of them, they can't keep a job. It's destroying their income. And the family just can't take it any longer. And so they go to have an intervention. It's always a critical moment when the uh, addict walks into the room and there they see their family all seated along with a counselor. Sometimes the people will walk in and say, okay, 
I'll do it. Because they've got a treatment center already set up. Everything's ready to go. They can leave like that. It's amazing how many episodes the addict walks into the room, sees everyone, and says, no, we are not doing this. And they will turn around and walk out. They'd rather stay in their addiction, stay in their prison, stay in their slavery, than to move into the unknown. Because this has become so much a part of their identity that they don't know what life would be like without it, even though they hate it. I wonder if any Egyptians, I mean, Israelites were going through that. For a moment, they're sitting there wondering, it's all going to change. I don't know if I can do it. I mean, like, we're going to be led out into the wilderness. Where where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Like, we're going to lose everything. Now, I suspect that all of the Israelites did what God said. They'd either seen or heard the nine other plagues. And so when God says, all right, a tenth one's coming, okay, yeah, 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 we'll do it. So I, I don't think any of them hesitated. But how often do you and I hesitate? When we sense God calling us into something, but it's scary. I don't know if I can do it. Whether it's a good thing like marriage or making a change in jobs or going into some ministry. And we end up balking and we stay back rather than move ahead in faith. Because that's exactly what the uh, the Israelites had to do. They had to exhibit faith. Because I think about it. They had to kill a lamb, paint the blood on the doorpost, wear all their clothes, ready to go. What if God doesn't come through? What if he doesn't show up? It actually took faith to do all of this. And then God does show up. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Those first nine plagues, each one attacked a different Egyptian god. But I think part of the reason Pharaoh kept saying no is because none of them seemed to affect him directly. But then when his own son, his own firstborn, dies Pharaoh realizes he couldn't even save and protect his own. The one that was the heir to the throne was taken from him. At that point, Pharaoh realizes, I am defeated. And they're like, go, get out of here. In fact, if you keep reading, you'll see the Israelites start to come out of their homes. They're bringing their stuff. They're starting to congregate together. And the Egyptians are like, what do you need? And so the Israelites are saying like things like, well, like, you know, I, we actually probably could use some gold. You know, we might need to buy some things along the way. Okay, yeah, yeah. Here's some gold. Here, have, have some silver too. Do you need any pots for cooking? You know, I've got a little bit of extra rations here. And basically, without lifting a weapon, the Israelites plunder the Egyptians. And they take off. And at that moment, as they start leaving Egypt, everything changed. They went from being slaves 
to being free. They went from being a nation with no hope to being a nation now with lots of hope. They went from being a people who wondered if God had forgotten them because for 430 years they were in slavery. And now they believe that they have the most powerful God ever, the one true God, because look at all that he just did. That's how remarkable the Passover is. It changed an entire race, changed an entire nation, and it changed an entire religion. And it was so important that God, if you keep reading, God institutes the Passover meal, and he wants them to do this annually, and he lays out rules for what they're to do and how they are to do it. And even to this day, thousands upon thousands of years later, every spring, Jewish people are engaging in the Passover meal. It's that important. And yet, it points to something even more significant. Because the Passover, it changed one people. But the gospel can change all people. The the Passover, it changed one nation. But the gospel creates a new nation. The Passover changed a faith. And yet, the gospel changes eternity. I see three things within the, within the Passover message that point to the gospel, that point to Jesus. At Riverwood, for us, the gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the perfect and complete image of Jesus. And God does that through the cross. Jesus died upon a cross for the forgiveness of sin. The punishment for sin was death. And yet Jesus went and took our punishment for us to now offer us life. And I see within that gospel message three things that the Passover points to. The the first one there is in the freedom from slavery. Think about it. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And yet, through the Passover, they get released. They become free. They were no longer slaves. Well, the same goes for people. If, If you are human, you have been enslaved to sin. In fact, Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 7, he's writing to these people and he's explaining the gospel to them. And some of them knew Judaism. And so he's explaining to them the importance of the law. All right, this is what the Jews followed for many, many years. And and he, he says to them in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. All right, so it's from God, it's spiritual, it's good, but I am of the flesh. I'm human. And what's that mean? means that I have been sold under sin. If you're human, when you were born, you were born into slavery to sin. Just like an Israelite baby, when it was born in Egypt, didn't matter. It was already in slavery. The, the Pharaoh could say, kill the baby boys, because he exerted authority over it. And you wonder how many baby boys lost their life because of the word of the Pharaoh. They didn't have a choice. Neither did you. When you were born into this life, you didn't have a choice. You were born into sin. And yet, through Jesus, you are offered freedom. You can move out from slavery to sin into this relationship with God. It's remarkable. The Passover points to Jesus in that we see this movement from slavery to freedom. The second thing I see that points to Jesus, excuse me, forgot my point, is the death of the firstborn. The death of of the firstborn. Just as it was the death of each of the firstborn that allowed the people to go from Egypt, 
It's the death of the ultimate firstborn, Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this does not mean that he was the firstborn of creation. Like, as God get ready, got ready to create everything, oh, you know what? I think it'd be great to create Jesus. No. The word firstborn doesn't just mean the one born first. It means the one who has preeminence, the one in prominence, the, the one with authority. We've already seen in this His Story series, the story of Esau and Jacob. They were twins. Esau is born first. A few minutes later, Jacob comes along, and Esau is the firstborn. And so he, therefore, has the right. Because that way, when their father passes away, Esau would take over the land, the, the, the slaves, the family, the servants. I mean, he would just take over all of it. And yet, we know through the story that Jacob kind of tricked him out of it, and Jacob became the firstborn. Even though... He was born second. He was the firstborn. And then a couple weeks ago when my friend Jason was here teaching and he did the story of Joseph. In that story, there's a part where Joseph brings his sons to his father, Jacob. And he's like, Father, would you bless my sons? And Jacob, now thinking he's dying, goes to put his hands on the boys. And Joseph's positioned them so that Manasseh, the older, is right here. So that the right hand of his father would go on him and the left hand on the younger. But right as Jacob goes to bless them, he crosses his hands and he blesses Ephraim. And Joseph starts throwing a stink. Like, no, 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 dad, uh, you got it wrong. Sorry, you're going blind. I know you're an old man. You know, hey, no, move the hands over here. And Jacob's like, no, I know what I'm doing. The younger will become the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn because he has authority. He has preeminence. He's in the prominent place of all of history, of all of creation. And it took his death to give us life. It was through the death of the firstborn, Jesus, that brings us into a relationship with God. And then one more. The last thing I see that points to Jesus through the Passover is the blood of the lamb. Remember, they were supposed to kill a lamb, take hyssop branches, dip it in the blood, and paint it on the doorpost. And God said that that blood would be a sign that when he passed through Egypt and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would realize something's already died. And he could pass over to the next home. And Jesus is called the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verse 36, John the Baptist is preaching to the people. And all of a sudden he sees Jesus walking along. And he points at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as our Bible starts coming to a conclusion, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Only God is allowed worship. 
And yet these elders, these creatures, fall on their face and sing a song and worship the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus, whose blood was shed to ransom people, to buy people out of slavery into freedom in Christ. And it says that they become this new people, this new tribe, this new nation who belong to God. Passover is remarkable. It's significant. It changed everything for Moses and the Israelites. And yet it is merely a shadow. It points to the gospel. This gospel that doesn't just change it for one people group. It can change it for all people. It doesn't just change one nation. It can create a whole new nation. It it changes everything. And so that means that if you are a follower of Jesus and someone asks you, what is the most significant day in your life? It isn't your wedding. It isn't the day your child was born. It isn't the day a loved one died. It isn't the day you got a certain job. It isn't even the day you were called to plant a church. The most significant day was the day that you said yes to following Jesus. Because on that day, when you said yes, everything changed. You went from being a slave to sin to being free in Christ. You went from being lost to being found. You went from being an orphan to being a child of God. You went from being spiritually disconnected to reconnected with your creator. Everything changed changed for you. That's how amazing and powerful the gospel is. And that is why every Sunday at Riverwood, we sing about it. We gather to hear about it. It's why many of us get together in growth groups throughout the week to look at this gospel more and more, to understand just how much it changes us. It's why we go and do things like the food bank or the family fun fair. We get out into the community because we are compelled to go and be a blessing because of what God has done for us. Now, if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to put the blood of Christ over the doorpost of your heart and let him become the center of who you are. Let him be your identity Because it changes everything. If you follow the story of the Israelites, they end up going and wandering in the desert for 40 years. It wasn't like life became really easy and they suddenly were in paradise. But yet they had a relationship with their God through it all. When you say yes to Jesus, it doesn't just suddenly mean your life's now a bunch of rainbows and cotton candy. But it does mean you have a relationship with your creator. You are no longer spiritually disconnected. You're now reconnect with your creator who's wanting to restore the image of Jesus within you so that you will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And it's a journey you'll be thrilled to be upon. If that's a journey that you're ready to start on that connection card I talked about earlier, there's just a little spot that says, today I say yes to following Jesus. I'm going to encourage you to check that. Not because of Riverwood we're trying to get a bunch of check marks. We want to help you begin this relationship with Jesus, and to go deeper with him. Because we believe that what this world needs is you changed by the gospel. And it will make a difference at home, at work, in your community. And we'd love to be a part of that journey. But for many of you, you are already a follower of Jesus. I want you to just realize just how great the gospel is. It is nothing to be ashamed of. It changed your life. 
And I would love to see it compel you to go and make a difference and to be making a difference in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in your neighborhood, in the clubs, the activities you're involved in. I just want to see it infused into the very being of who you are, that you would be Jesus-centered. Because the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, died for you so that you might move from slavery to freedom. So, Father, we come before you now to say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, we say thank you for being willing to die in our place. Our sin was great. We deserved that angel of death coming into our lives and making us pay our punishment. And yet you, Jesus, took it for us. We are eternally grateful. So God, I just pray for anyone here who is unsure in their spiritual journey. Right now, you'd be helping them to take that next step to come to Jesus and let your blood be the the payment for them so that they can be free. I want to pray for my whole church family. Pray that each and every one of us, that this wouldn't just be words that we know, this wouldn't be some intellectual thing, but this would filter down into our heart and it would compel us to make a difference because you've made an eternal difference in us. God, would you just continue to take the diamond of the gospel and help us to see its beauty as we continue to turn it, to study it, to learn it, to know it, and to make it known. May you just do a great work in each of us as you seek to do a great work through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.